perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Welcome to the Thinking God podcast, where we talk to writers, speakers, educators, and artists who take spirituality seriously and who share the conclusion that hope is still a viable option in this world. And I believe that's how the light gets in. Today's guest is Shane Claiborne. And if you haven't heard of Shane Claiborne, I can promise you, you are in for a real treat. Shane Claiborne, I'm sorry, make that Dr. Shane Claiborne. Is that right now? Dr. Shane Claiborne. I'm a speaker, a social commentator, the author of more than a dozen books, and a prophetic voice of faith crying out in an age of increasing fear and greed. Uh, in some ways, you're sort of this generation's incarnation of Tony Campolo, although Tony's still here. Uh, you're half his age, you're just about half his size, and about uh, half, half again as much hair as Tony Campolo <laughs> we've had on here. But you do preach a very similar core message of social justice, and you, you of course, work together on Red Letter Christianity. Uh, Shane's works appeared in Esquire, Spin, Christianity Today, The Wall Street Journal, and he has been on everything from Fox News to Al Jazeera to CNN to NPR. He's given academic lectures at Harvard, Princeton, Brown, Liberty, Duke, and Notre Dame, Notre Dame and he speaks regularly at, at a number of gatherings, festivals, and other conferences around the globe. But um, I haven't been on the Thinking God podcast. The crowning achievement is today. <laughs> it is, I appreciate you being my guest. Welcome, Shane. First of all, where in East Tennessee are you from? I went to Carson Newman College in Jefferson City, Tennessee. So, I'm Sure, man. I've speak there every couple of years. I've been uh Carson Newman a bunch. I grew up uh, outside of Knoxville, a little town called Maryville. Oh, I know. Maryville's been – Jeff City's right between Mar- Knoxville and – Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. My folks are from the Smoky Mountains. My great-grandfather was the uh, postman by horseback all through the mountains, so – I'd say it's safe to say some of my family anyway are, are the hillbilly type uh, with the moonshine and whatnot, I reckon. Oh, yeah. I always tell people both sides of my family came from Scotland about the same time several hundred years ago. So I'm probably related to myself somewhere back there in the, in the, great, in the great hillbilly tradition. Um, first of all, talking about East Tennessee, is that where your spiritual journey began? Did you grow up in church? and? Uh... That's where everything began for me. Yeah, I, I was born and raised there my whole life until I went to college. And uh, yeah, I, 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 we went to a bunch of different places. You know, we had some family that were Baptists and were, were sort of like that, that strong Baptist. Uh, like, like you might not have to be Baptist to go to heaven, but you better not take a chance kind of Baptist, you know. And, right. and then I had my, my my mom started taking me to the uh, the. Uh, Methodist Church, and I—that's I, where I really found my faith and um, grew to love old John Wesley. I mean, he's a—he's a fireball, and I, you know, the Methodist Church is what I grew up in, and uh, had a powerful time in middle school where I dedicated my life to Jesus and been figuring stuff out ever since. Well, the Methodist Church, I mean, in particular, you're a good bit younger than me, but during the time of uh, you were coming up, it was still pretty had a commitment to social justice. Were some of those seeds planted then? I don't know. I I was I'll be honest, Greg. I was pretty narcissistic uh, still. I I became a believer in Jesus, but you know, as we like to say, there's a difference between being a believer and being a disciple. And I, I think my Christianity was mostly about what I believed. And then later I, I, you know, I I did start getting wind of some of that, but 
uh, it was really coming up to Philly, uh, getting in, involved in the lives of folks living on the street and the, you know, the homeless moms and families here in Kensington in particular. And that, that, uh, uh, lit me up, you know, it really sparked the fire in me for justice and, and, and it brought my faith to life too, in a way that it, uh, hadn't really been, uh, you know, so I, it's kind of like scripture went from, uh, color, black and white to color, came into 3D or something like that. Yeah. Well, Maryville, Tennessee is a long way from Philadelphia. How did you get to Eastern College? What made you? I'll tell you how long it was. Like, there's a lot of things I love about Southern hospitality and, you know, where I grew up. I learned a lot from my mom and my grandparents about love and, uh, hospitality but i also like man we've got some deep healing still to do from uh our racial history down there my high school growing up in maryville was the maryville high school rebels and we had the confederate flag on everything you know football uniforms murals on the wall and i didn't know that that was weird until i came to philly and put my yearbook from high school on my bookshelf and my (laughs) friends were like whoa tennessee what's up man that is not cool you know but anyway i i i i i I go back all the time and i love east tennessee and i love the things i've learned up here in philly too been here for 20 years now Right. It, uh, we just got the flag down here in South Carolina last year, so I understand. I feel your pain. <laughs> just, uh... Oh, yeah. You got Bree Newsom down there. I needed her in high school. Get up there and take that thing down. Yeah. yeah really. Um, now, when during all this, I, I was looking through some of your bio stuff, Shane. When did you spend time with Mother Teresa? And uh, how did that uh, happen? Well, when I was in college, the great thing about being, you know, 18, 19 years old is nobody's convinced you anything's impossible. And we were really, uh, the more we got to fall in love with Jesus, the more we wanted to know how to more uh, faithfully follow him. And, and Mother Teresa was still alive. So we read a lot about her and watched documentaries. And then we were like, man, let's just go. And we did. We 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 wrote a letter and didn't hear back. So then we just called nuns on the phone and got a phone number, tracked her down, basically. We, uh, <laughs> we, we, we called and she answered the phone and we went over and worked there. It was in, I guess that was in, uh, like 95 maybe or something like that. Yeah. So we went over there in the summer between our school years, a group of college friends and I, and, uh, it was amazing, you know, worked in places I had only read about and seen on TV, you know, sort of the, uh, I worked every afternoon in the home for the destitute and dying mother Teresa's first home. She started, um, in the orphanages with the kids on the street, spent a, a great deal of time in a, a little village of folks who had leprosy and skin diseases. And man, I just, uh, it, it transformed and shaped who I am. Well, the only other person I've ever interviewed who spent time over there was California governor, Jerry Brown, who said that he was just overwhelmed with the sense of Jesus and all the suffering in the place. And that, it gave him a new appreciation for what dignity meant and, and giving people dignity. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Mother Teresa said, you know, you if you look close when you when you look into the eyes of the poor, you see Jesus staring back at you. Jesus in his most distressing disguises we see in the the most poor and marginalized people in this world. And and that's also why she was pretty strict on um it, when you gave someone food 
if you didn't put enough vegetables or gravy on the rice, you know, she'd be like, what is this? Is it, this is not fit for Jesus. You know, you, you shouldn't be giving this to the poor because you're feeding Jesus when you feed them. Do it right, you know. So, yeah. Well, you're obviously one of these guys who's smoking what he's selling. You live simply. You live in community and in inner city. And you're still there, even though your first one burned to the ground. Um, why do you think it's important to live in a community like that for you, especially since you've already, you can tell God already gave it a try and you burned it down? Well, we're we're made for community, first of all. I think that community is a strange thing because we use that word and, like, it, it's a nebulous thing. You, you know, it, it's not like you totally have it or you totally don't. I think it's a longing built inside of us. You know, we're created in the image of a God who reflects community back to us, you know, Father, Son, and Spirit, this kind of community of oneness. And and so I think like when the first humans made, God says, uh, uh, pronounces it really good when they're together helping each other and says it's not good for one to be alone. So I, I th- that goes all through the scripture. It's a story of community and of God forming a people, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the Jesus is where two or three of you gather in my name. I'm with you. So it's a community story. Um, but we've, we've kind of lost the art of it in some of our industrialized countries. It's like we, we, um, have made idols of individualism and independence, you know, independence isn't a gospel value. Like interdependence is a gospel value, needing God and other people sharing life together. The early church, you know, it said no one claimed any of their possessions were their own. They shared everything they had. So that's the stuff that inspired us. Uh, but, but like I said, it's kind of like we're using muscles that have atrophied a little bit. So we're, we're like, growing into this uh thing and and over the 20 years you know we've the the exact form and shape of community has changed um one of my friends said community is kind of like an organic being you know like just like a kid you, you you go through different stages and each stage has its charm and its funk you know and you know baby's cute but you got to change its diaper and teenagers are like starry eye but they also got some angst sometimes you know so like i think that's what community's been like there's been different seasons of it um for us and and now it feels like we have a little bit more of a village uh because you know you mentioned we had a fire eight years ago that burnt down a lot of our our physical space here but we kind of moved into the crevices and cracks and abandoned houses we built a park where our old community center burnt down so it feels a little bit more like a village um and the way that we talk about community now is that there's uh, several different groups of people. Um, and we talk about remainers, returners, and relocators. So in our neighborhood, we've got repain- remainers, which are indigenous long-term neighbors that continue to courageously stay here and be a part of the redemption story. Returners, like the young man I've mentored, Derek, he grew up on the block. He lived with us, went to Eastern University where I went. Now he's a social worker in the neighborhood. So he returned to the neighborhood to bring his gifts here and use them here. He's a part of our core community and on our board. Um, and then we've got relocators, which is what I am. You know, other non-Indigenous folks, folks that are not from here that have come here to bring uh, who we are and, and to listen to what God's doing here and be a part of it. So, um uh, yeah, so I, I think there's a community longing in all of us, though, and it, it, sometimes it expresses itself in 
trying to belong to fraternities or gangs or whatever. I think there's a lot of ways that we try to belong or a political party, <laughs> whatever, you know, like, but those, those, like, I think in all of us, we, we are longing to love and be loved. And that's what community is really about. Now, and, and your community, just for people who don't know, is in, uh, is in inner city Philadelphia, which is, we're, we're, we're talking about the, the crime rate's pretty high. It is. Well, when I talk about my neighborhood, I don't, I think sometimes language like inner city or whatever, we use language that's coded. And yeah, you're for, right. for, for me, my, my neighborhood is called Kensington. It's on the north side of Philly. Um, it's a neighborhood that was built around factories and everybody just flooded here because there were so many jobs. And uh, it, it, the, so the, those jobs have largely left over the past few decades and we've lost, uh, it's estimated over a hundred thousand jobs and we've got 700 abandoned factories, 20,000 abandoned houses. Um, so there are struggles. I mean, particularly, you know, when a neighborhood is built around jobs that aren't there anymore uh, and you have a dense population of people who move there because of the jobs, it's tricky, but there's a lot of things I love about my neighborhood. I mean, community is how people have survived. So we, we, I mean, community is is very rich here, and I think that's true in a lot of places that are economically poor. They're community rich, and a lot of places that are economically rich are community poor because you you don't feel like you need to know your neighbors, and there's a sort of facade that you can exist on your own and stuff. So there's a lot of things I'm proud of. There's a lot of things that we we got our own monsters and demons we're you know wrestling with here and. Uh, certainly gun violence, uh, inequities in the school system, mass incarceration, the drug economy, all those are things. But there's also um, a lot of room for resurrection, you know, and we see a lot of life and beautiful families and abandoned houses that we're bringing back to life. So it's a beautiful uh, place to call home. That's cool. You know, down here, there are a lot of smaller scale communities popping up in the old mill villages from the very similar yeah. on a smaller scale textile mills abandoned all these houses everywhere. A lot of them have been condemned a lot of, them, you know, so we are still seeing some of that down south. So that's a good thing that it's, it is kind of catching on and talking about community though. What, are, what do you think the connection between community and church is? Because sometimes there seems to be a disconnect. Well, I, I don't, you know, it's, it's uh, one of those things where, um, a lot of people go to church, but they don't have community within that. Um, and there's other folks that find community, but they don't go to church. Like I, I, I want to say that um, in the big story of what God's doing, um, one of the things that we've got to recognize is that we we can't be the church without the church. And our deep community is about connecting to the bigger body of Christ, as it's called. I mean, I think that's really what we are called to be in the world. So um, this ancient story of, of uh, God's redemption that happens through the church. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, there's a lot of folks who say, I want Jesus, but not the church. And, and the early Christians were pretty clear that you can't call Jesus, they, in their own words, they said, we can't call Jesus father if we don't call the church mother. Uh, and, and there's a pastor in my neighborhood that had a good version of that. He said, uh, 
you know, the church may be messed up. He said, I, I like to think of it kind of like Noah's Ark, uh, that big boat, you know, and he said that uh, saved everybody. He, he said it, it probably stunk. You know, there were days where it, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of animals, a lot of funk going on in there. It probably <laughs> stunk. But he said, but if you jump off, you're going to drown. You know, if you jump ship, you're going to drown. That part of what we got to do is, uh, is about repair, doing something about the, the, the funk, you know, and, 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 uh, cleaning things up and re- restoring the church. So I believe in the restoration of the church. I believe in being a part of the local congregations in our neighborhood. That's kind of what we've done from the beginning is we said, um, we're not community without the church. Like we want to worship in our neighborhoods. We want to be a part of the um, local congregations here. And so like when people come to faith, we don't baptize them in our bathtub. We actually invite them to be a part of a local congregation, you know, and um, the sacraments like marriage and things like that we do through the church. And we, we, you know, like, but church isn't confined to a building or a meeting or a priesthood. Like I think we do have a sense that church is organic. It's lived out of dinner tables and living rooms. It's not an institution uh, as as much as it's a organism, you know, not just an organization. So we, we, we really believe in that organic body. But I think that exists inside and outside of institutions. And that's exactly why um, uh, Jesus goes to synagogue. I mean, he's a very uh, faithful and, and connecting to the Jewish tradition, the story of what God's doing in the church uh, and through history. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's doing Passover. He's doing all this. So I think that, that I, I'm, I'm suspicious of this idea of, of being spiritual, but not religious. I, I think we, we can be both and at our best, like, um, religion is, is, is not about, uh, the, the, uh, you know, some folks say that tradition is the, uh, the, the the dead dead faith of what is it the dead faith of those who have gone before us but I think it's actually the living faith of those who have passed it on to us you know so um, that's that's part of what we uh, celebrate we need to celebrate the the heroes of the church and build on the liturgy and the spiritual disciplines and the church calendar and that's why we did things like our common prayer project you know uh, which is about really building on uh, traditions of prayer that are hundreds of years old. So yeah, that's, that's what we, we believe in. And if that's very Franciscan, you know, St. Francis, um, uh, of Assisi, he, he heard this whisper in the middle of the materialism of the middle ages and the holy wars and all this like absolute, like contorted, polluted Christianity. He heard the whisper of God say, repair my church, which is in ruins. Um, and he began to literally, I mean, he took it pretty literally, he started building back an old cathedral, but at San Damiano, but I think he also had this bigger vision of restoring the church. Uh, uh, and, and so that, that's, that's why some people call what we're, we're doing a monastic, uh, movement because it's not, we're not parachurch, we're pro-church. We're not jumping ship. We're actually trying to, uh, bring fresh life into the old body. Well, and I came out of Jesus movement, so I watched some of the manifestation of what you're talking about. A lot of communities popped up, a lot of people doing a lot of good things, but they were part of it was the age group, and our, we were just hard headed, but and, and the rebellion. But they were so anti structure and so anti organization, most of them didn't make it, and yeah. they, they weren't willing to pull the best of the past and the tradition of the church forward 
and use it as a tool for what they were trying to accomplish now and in the future. So they they obviously either failed or many of them became cults. In fact, a lot of the leaders later in life, if you look back at a lot of the folks who were really instrumental in the Jesus movement, they're Orthodox now. They joined the Orthodox went completely to a completely organized structure. Right, right. One of my buddies, uh, he said, you know, during the emerging church movement a few years ago, he said it kind of felt like we were on a kayak, you know, blazing this wild river, you know, this kind of raging water. And he said, but then, you know, as things sort of settled down, you, you realize you're not on a kayak, you're on a rowboat. And if you want to go forward, you look backward. And, that, you know, I think that's a beautiful metaphor. That, that was my buddy Chris Haw that said that. And I think, you know, as we, the, the, the future of the church is about looking back. And I think part of what we see, even, you know, it's going to be 500 years since the Reformation uh, next year. And, and we, we look at these, these movements and there's some things that we can learn from them, but there's also some things that we need to keep looking further back. Cause I think we, you know, half the word Protestant is protest, but we don't even remember what we were protesting, you know? So I, yeah, but I, you know, that, that quote that's so beautiful is that tradition is the living faith of the dead and traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Ah. That's a good quote because I think that's, because tradition is a beautiful thing, uh, but it has to be alive, you know, and, and I think that's where we, you know, as we've done a lot of our work, we're, we're actually pointing back, but we're saying like, this is, I mean, look at St. Francis. I mean, this brother is not irrelevant. He's like a saint for today. I mean, the brother was like the first environmentalist. He was like, uh, you know, like, uh, passionately uh, a conscientious objector to war went over enemy lines to meet the you know head sultan of the muslim army like to build friendships and trust that god's working and like he you know renounced material possessions i mean that brother would be uh out on wall street i think you know <laughs> with right. a, a protest and like he, I mean, he was an amazing life for today so you know he's the namesake of the pope and i think the pope's uh doing beautiful work on that so we can celebrate that God is at work in these institutions. And there are renewals happening in the Salvation Army and the Anabaptist traditions of the Mennonites and others. I think there's some beautiful stuff happening. And uh, a friend of mine, though, uh, said we can't get distracted by all, all uh, too much because uh, in the end it is about Jesus. And uh, she wrote an article that said, if you like Pope Francis, you'll really like Jesus. <laughs> and I think that's what we want. But we, but these people reflect Jesus to us, you know, and you look at some of the great saints. And uh, uh, it was, I think, Frederick Beekner that said, all, all the saint is, is, is a person that God left on earth as a handkerchief in the romance with us to leave the, the, the fragrance of heaven down here, you know, so like to leave the scent of heaven on earth. And so we look at these lives of people like, Mother Teresa and St. Francis and Oscar Romero and Dorothy Day and Martin Luther King, so many others, they left off the fragrance of Jesus's love and justice in the world. And uh, so they can inspire us. I'd add G.K. Chesterton to that list. Uh, probably one of the most. Yeah, man. Yeah. That's a great brother. Yeah. I went through two seminaries and was never asked to read Chesterton or Chesterton was never mentioned. So that tells you that he's overlooked too often, but uh. I, I love uh, one of his favorite lines is when they asked him what's wrong with the world. And he said, I am. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great line. Yeah, that's, a lot of them, but that's one. Yeah. You speak a lot in churches and at, uh, you mentioned colleges and things and the church, even in your lifetime has seen a pretty dramatic shift. And today, if you look at, uh, 
at least on a numerical uh, you know, matrix, the fastest growing churches tend to be the flat screen churches. Um, what other changes are you seeing and what, where do you see the church heading in, in, in the months ahead from the people you're talking to? What does that mean? Flat screen, like they don't have hymnals, they got a no, over okay. like a the, the biggest churches, the, 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 the largest church, two churches, at least on the last thing were Andy Stanley's um, North Point in Atlanta and which he preaches at the main sermon, but the other, they have satellite campuses and they watch. Oh him. yeah. And then the second largest was actually in my neighborhood, New Spring Church with exactly the same thing, 14 satellite campuses, but one, one pastor speaking to all of them at once on the flat screen. That, that's what I mean by flat screen churches. Well, I, I, I'll say, you know, a few thoughts or one of them, I think, is that we've got to think um, we, we've got to get a broad perspective beyond white evangelicalism, too. And the fact is that the church is growing all over the world, mm-hmm. uh, just maybe not where we're accustomed to think of it. You know, it's not just like um, uh, mega churches, but it's growing in underground churches. It's growing in Pentecostal churches, growing in rural villages, you know, and I think that that's really helpful to remember. Um, but I think God's at work in the world and it's beautiful to see. Um, one of the challenges I would say is that I think that we have sometimes been infatuated with bigger, like bigger is better. And that's true of, you know, your, your, uh, happy meal and your SUV and your whatever, you know, it's kind of like bigger is better. But I think we've, we've come to see that there's sort of a pendulum swing that, that, um, from the mega church to the micro church, you know, to where people really are longing for community, especially millennials. And so small groups, I mean, half the curriculum coming out of mega churches is how to get people into small groups, you know, yep. and there's, there's an interesting model here, here in Philly. I'm a part of a congregation called circle of hope. And, um, one of the things that circle has done, it's brethren in Christ, um, congregation that began to really rapidly grow because it's very relevant to the questions people are asking and engaged in neighborhoods, really creative and artistic. It's beautiful people using their gifts in a different way. But as it began to grow, they said, well, this is really about community. So we want to keep that essence of growing smaller and smaller in communities. So, you know, it's, it's called a cell church, which like cells of the body, they multiply or some of them die, you know, but that's how it reproduces is through home growth groups and sell a cell model. I think that's beautiful. And now even when a congregation gets beyond 200 people, uh, we hive off like a beehive, you know, hive off a new congregation. So I think we've got six congregations now and um, they're, you know, uh, 100, 200 people in each of those. And we keep hiving those off. We keep multiplying cells. So it's a beautiful model to me. Um, for a lot of reasons, we don't need all the big buildings and massive staff. It's organized a lot more in the organic way that something like Alcoholics Anonymous is organized, um, which I think the church, especially churches that are struggling to maintain structures and buildings and institutions and staff and things like that, we we could learn a lot from AA. 
uh, I think we can learn a lot from AA in general, but like beyond the 12 steps, there's the principles of AA, which are don't own real estate. Don't take big donations from people because they'll think they should have more influence than they should. You know, don't have one spokesperson, uh, have a more decentralized leadership. Uh, and that's why you don't have a spokesperson for AA. It's a fellowship, you know, it's a very organic community. So I love that. I think, you know, those are some of the things that, um, have helped AA thrive would be a really interesting um, help for some of our congregations and institutions that are struggling. So a couple, th- couple things spinning off what you just said, because you, you hit a bunch of things there. One, the AA thing, you know, uh, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, Bill W. has a, 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 a phrase he wrote that no one will find success or stay sober without gratitude and service. Talk about something yeah. we can really learn from and all that. And, and you mentioned the cell group movement. You know, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, but there was an author, an Argentinian uh, pastor back in the 70s, Juan Carlos Ortiz, who wrote a book called Disciple Living with Jesus Today. He started that. He, he had a church down there that grew t- from 200 to 700 in a year, and he realized he didn't have 700 people who were trying to follow Jesus. He just had 700 people. Yeah, so they broke it into a cell, small cell groups, and he really worked on that. He was sort of a pioneer in all that. And his his books, a lot of them are out of print, but very fascinating uh, pastor. And uh, he's tried to build bridges later in life with uh, with the different traditions, like you're saying, worldwide uh, Spanish speaking people, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of Cat- Roman Catholics, a lot of. Uh, Pentecostals and a lot of other traditions trying to blend services so they can all participate in online and stuff and on satellite feeds and stuff. But he's a very fascinating guy. Yeah. And, and, you know, the other thing with some of this, this is not new, you know, there's nothing new under no. the sun, as it says, like some of this is hundreds of years old, but the fact is that some of the stuff we're doing now doesn't look very much like the stuff that the early church was doing in the early days. So even like at circle of hope, which I've been mentioning, we have, our love feasts, which were like the agape meals of the early church, you know, and it's those we we do these quarterly gatherings where um, we baptize folks and we celebrate new covenants within the community and stuff. So there are times where all of our congregations get together. Man, it was awesome. We did the, some of the baptisms this year in the Delaware River, you know, right over here, which actually was really fascinating because it's not known for being an environmentally healthy river, you know, <laughs> there's like trash and things like that. But, you know, there's tires around on the edge of the river. But as we're walking, that's part of why it was so powerful is we're baptizing people in this. And it's a lament of what we've done for creation to, to creation as well. And there's this hope as people rise from the water that they're a part of the resurrection story and the healing of our own hearts and of our our city and of our world. So I love that. I think that's the kind of fusion we need. So these, but we do need some imagination. You know, we need some creativity. We need to dust off some of the liturgy. We need to like, it it does have to have life in it. And so I think some of, some of the incredible expressions, uh, that, um, of church and the emerging church movement and others are, are beautiful, helpful tools for us to, uh, think about ways that we can, uh, we we can be more creative, you know, uh, w- 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 as a community. I was years ago. I was on staff at a church, and the, as we were young and idealistic, and it kept coming up in meetings. We wanted to be like the first church, and I just sort of threw out there that means everybody brings their paycheck and throws it on the table, and we divide, right? 
Yeah. That, that discussion ended rather, rather quickly. Everybody <laughs> rides a cam on a donkey. Boom. Yeah. You also talked about millennials. You know, a number of recent polls have suggested that at least 25% of American millennials, uh, and the numbers are much higher in Europe and some other nations, profess no belief in God but don't consider themselves atheists. They see faith in a higher power as irrelevant. Why do you think this is, and what what should, you know, um, why should they see God as, as, as relevant what is good news for these folks that we need to be saying? Well, I, I, this is this is what I want to say is that I am convinced that Christianity uh, are, spreads not by force but by fascination. Uh, people are fascinated by the way the early church loved one another. I mean, even the pagan emperors were saying those godless Galileans are taking care of the poor like nobody else. They don't even care whether they're Christians or not. You know, they take care of it, all the poor. Um, and, and the way that they loved each other, the way that they challenged the patterns of violence, these things were fascinating to the world around them because they were such a contrast. Um, and I think that part of what has happened is that to be frank, some of our Christianity has become less and less fascinating to the world. Uh, that Christians have uh, often been known more for who we've excluded than who we've embraced. Um, more for what we're against and what we're for. And, you know, they're not going to know that we're Christians by our bumper stickers and T-shirts, but by our love. And it's not by even by our doctrinal statements. I think those... You know, the things we believe are important, but you don't, doctrines are hard things to love. And you don't see in Jesus just an invitation to sign on a line, you know, of a presentation of ideas. You see the embodiment of God's love. So I think that's what we really have got to return to. And that's why we talk a lot about a Christianity that looks like Jesus again. Uh, and I find that, I mean, I get letters, tons and tons of letters and a lot of them are from folks that would say that they're not Christian. Um, but they say, I sure love Jesus. I just uh, wish the Christians looked more like him, you know. And, I, and, and But many of them will say things like, I knew that there was more to Christianity, you know. And almost every day I get uh, notes from folks that have re-embraced Jesus and, and the church. Uh, and, and, you know, I, one, one of the things I tell young people a lot is I say, whenever people say the church is full of hypocrites, I say, no, no, we're not. We've always got room for more, you know, mm -hmm. and I think we've got to have humility though. And for too long, like we've acted like the church is a country club for saints rather than a place for wounded people to find love. And, and so I think the world's not looking for Christians that are perfect, but for Christians that are honest uh, and and honest with their hypocrisies, their struggles, uh, and and that's the kind of thing that um, that that builds people because they they know that they they find a home here. You know, I went to one congregation, very fun, edgy congregation in Tennessee, and uh, uh, they had the T-shirts, the the greeters at the door. You know, instead of just suits and ties, they had T-shirts that said "No perfect people allowed." And I love that, you know, because what if every church, you know, had that kind of invitation at the door that, you know, you're allowed in here as as long as you realize that you don't have it all together. 
And uh, so I, I think we need we need to to be honest uh, about you know this is about imperfect people falling in love with the perfect God, and uh, every day we're trying harder to that our hypocrisies might be a little less than they were yesterday. It's a little bit of a callback. We're talking about twelve steps. You know the idea of attraction, not promotion. That when people see something going on that has power, and then people are attracted to it, you don't have to promote it and do all the the yeah. and whistles. That's right. Yeah, and uh, I had an atheist friend that said we've we've given the, the much of evangelicalism has given atheists less and less to disbelieve in, <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, and I think that really like uh, yeah, we want to. This is what the incarnation is about. You know that we're to be the body of Christ. We're Jesus said you'll do the same things I've been doing, and you'll do even greater things than these. They will know that you are mine by your love. So I think that's that's really. Uh, what we've got to keep after again. Well, speaking of trying to keep after love, we're in an election year. You once wrote a book called Jesus for President. (laughs) Uh, First of all, I'm not sure Jesus would make a great president. His staff would be a mess if it was any indication of his disciples. But um, what is your take on this political cycle? I've been covering this stuff for years, and this is one of the ugliest, strangest ones I've ever seen. Jesus for president. Yeah, I mean, we wrote that, I think, eight years ago, and mm-hmm. we were wrestling with these same things, you know, back then. I mean, it seems even more just as relevant today. But uh, There's more anger yeah. and more polarization this cycle, though, than there has been. Yeah, so the the idea for, for me, I think what's so important is that that you almost ask, what if every... Christian in the U.S. took their commitment to Jesus more seriously than their affiliation with any party or candidate. I mean, what would it look like if that was our framework? And I think that's part of the problem. Is and it's why I've challenged folks like uh, Jerry Falwell and 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 some others. Is is not personally, but actually more like like where is Jesus in this? You know, like what like what. What would it look like? And, and, you know, as folks will say, well, we're not, we're not electing a pastor in chief. You know, we're electing a commander in chief. And I'm like, yeah, but this is still the moral framework that every Christian is to work under. And both of the candidates claim to be Christian, you know. And so, like, the, the, the question is, like, what, what, what role do things like the Beatitudes play as we think about the election, things that Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, the meek, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. I mean, those are like the antithesis of many of the things that folks have come to adore uh, in America. And I, I think that the natural outbirth of when we lose track of of the things that are at the heart of God, like the scripture says, true religion is caring for the widows and the orphans. Um, then we, we get really lost, you know, and, and, uh, um, um, so, so I, I like to say, you know, how we think about immigration should be very influenced by Jesus for those of us that are followers of Jesus. When Jesus said, when you welcome the stranger, you welcome me. If you don't welcome the stranger, you don't welcome me. I mean, how does that uh, impact how we think about the, the refugee, um, uh, our refugee brothers and sisters, our immigrant brothers and sisters? So I think those are, we, we've lost track of, of, Jesus, those of us who are Christian, and I think that's why we see evangelicalism getting confused. And it's mostly white, older white evangelicals that I think are confused in, in the culture war still. And that was but, the question I was going to ask you. Are the, the people in your wonderful Northside community, they're kind of scratching their heads that they see all these 
white evangelical supporting Donald Trump? The whole world is scratching their well, yeah, heads. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I've been, <laughs> I'm in a country almost every month this year, and everywhere I go, people absolutely have no way to make sense of it. Um, and um, and millennials, I think it's a lot the same way. You know, I've, I've been working on the death penalty in particular. It's like 80% of millennial Christians are against the death penalty because they can't reconcile it with Jesus. You know, uh, and, and yet we continue to see many Christians championing the death penalty. You know, and it's, it gets confusing. So, yeah, I, I, um, I, I think that the, the when we wrote Jesus for President, one of the things that we insisted is that the big challenge in an election season is there is a temptation to to um, misplace our hope and to put our hope in a party or a candidate. Um, uh, and and there's that old hymn that says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. All other ground is sinking sand. And, and, and I think when the early Christians, what they were doing as they used language that was very political language, very charged. It was ripped right out of the imperial lexicon saying, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. Um, uh, you know, these, these were the, even the kingdom of God, the word kingdom was empire, you know, so all of this was about reclaiming that language and reorienting themselves around Christ. So every time they said Jesus is Lord, they, they were saying Caesar is not. Because there were there was already someone who was claiming to be Lord and Savior and the hope of the world, and so when and the I son think of, of God as well, all those things. Yeah, so when I think of voting, um, I, I think it is important that we not disengage. I mean, there's a great article in the Atlantic that said, "How will this generation change Washington when they hate it so much?" And I think this is a great question because the, the, the dropout rate is, is big right now, especially from young folks that have, I mean, the, the satisfaction polls are like we're as unsatisfied, dissatisfied as ever before with, you know, just politicians. Um, and so, you know, Bernie and, and Trump to a certain extent are all tapping into that. So I, I want to say like, you know, like we can still engage, but what's important is I think of voting as like doing damage control. You know, and like, I'm not looking for a savior. I'm not looking for a person that's going to change the whole world. I'm looking to for the person that's going to do the least amount of damage in the world. You know, the, uh, to minimize the collateral damage of the principalities and powers of this world. So I think that's a better posture as we think about voting. But vote shares the same root as devotion. You know, it's about what we admire and and. And I, I think we, we've got to ask some deep questions right now in our country about what's driving some of the, the um, uh, very angry, hostile voices in our country. And, and I think we've also made idols out of wealth and fame and power. And, and the tr- Trump is a phenomena, not just a person, but a phenomena that is the natural outgrowth of a country that has made idols out of wealth and 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 greed and power um and and so i think we've got to we've got to do a lot of healing from that and and we can look at the beatitudes of jesus we can look to jesus and we can also do the hard work that healing our 
our slavery, our, 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 the legacy of slavery and the residue of racism that continues to exist in our country. So we got a lot of work to do. Um, but I'm, I'm, I, I'm optimistic. I think it's like we've swept a lot of stuff under the rug and now somebody's ripped the rug up. And we're going, whoa, my gosh. But I think that's the beginning, you know, of, of cleaning some stuff up. So I, I think it's better to have it all out there than, you know, to pretend that everything's okay uh, and keep it swept under the rug. So you know, yours yeah. is a conclusion of hope then. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of truth telling happening in our country right now. One of my friends says, you know, we all want reconciliation, but you can't you can't have reconciliation till you tell the truth, you know, and the truth sets us free. And so I think as we're we're telling and we're hearing stories about the truth uh, of our country, what we did to native peoples, the fact that uh, of what we did with the lynching of black folks and mass incarceration now movies like the the uh the the new film 13 you know that that came out about slavery and mass incarceration what uh friends like my my friend Brian Stevenson are doing at the equal justice initiative down in uh Montgomery like they're telling truth and and I think the truth is the beginning of healing uh, uh, so, so I'm, I'm encouraged, but it's also like, it's a courageous moment where the people who you would think would be fearful are fearless and they are doing incredible things to bring injustice to light. Um, and there's other folks that, you know, we would think we have no reason to fear like white folks in this country, like, but we are some of the most absolutely fearful people. Uh, in the, in the world, and I think it's, some of it's the changing. You know, it's no coincidence that this is coming on the black, uh, the, the, the back of our first African American president and out of a powerful movement, uh, of, of the movement for black lives, of racial healing and justice in this country. And so there's amazing voices out there. Um, and, uh, yeah, we had a rabbi in Philly that said sometimes it can feel like, you know, when a woman, uh, like, like when someone's leaving their abuser, it's both a, a, a moment of tremendous vulnerability and you don't know what's going to happen next. But it's also you don't know how the abuser is going to react. But you also know that it is a moment that is pregnant with potential and possibility in a future. And I think in some ways we're at a crossroads in our history where a lot of our brothers and sisters of color are naming the abuse that they've been in for centuries. And now we are seeing a black, uh, a backlash from some of the, the folks that have been responsible and don't take responsibility for that. But it's also a moment of possibility. Uh, I, I think where a new future is possible if we want it. Shane, as we sit down here, that'll flat out preach, man. Um, I didn't get, I, I scanned it and meant to read the entire thing, did not get finished with it. But your new books, Executing Grace, uh, how the death penalty killed Jesus and why it's killing us. It, tell me a little bit. You were mentioning the incarceration and the death penalty and things. T- tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I, I I got involved in the death penalty. Sometimes these things choose us, you know, and I, 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 I began, first of all, by getting to know folks on death row and that were facing execution, um, some of whom maintained their innocence, Others were very outright that they were guilty um, of terrible things, but they were transformed by Christ. And I, I met people like um, um, Billy Neil Moore, who is uh, his guilt wasn't in question. He was responsible for taking someone's life and he turned himself in. He, he 
tried to kill himself. He had no reason to live. He said, if I could push the button on my own execution, I would do it. I would have done it. And, um, and then the victim's family really reached out. Uh, they got to know each other. And he, uh, they, they basically said to Billy, what, we hate what you did, but we love you. And we believe in God, a God of second chances, a God of grace, a God that we think God's not done with you yet. And so we're going to argue against the death penalty. And not only was his life spared, but eventually he was released from prison. And now he's a pastor (laughs) and I've gotten to preach with him, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think at the end of the day, like one of the questions is, is anybody beyond redemption? That's the question raised by the death penalty, you know, Um, and if we believe that that there that people who have committed murder are beyond redemption, then we've got a problem because one of the first murderers in the Bible is none other than Moses. You know, in Exodus, he killed a man, tried to bury him in the sand. David committed murder of uh, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to cover up his adulterous affair, rape of her. You know, like uh, Saul of Tarsus went door to door trying to kill Christians. You know, so I think like, uh, the Bible would be a lot, a lot shorter without grace. <laughs> and that's why I think the death penalty is so important. It's, it, it, it's to challenge this because the death penalty is, this is the, the, the strange thing about the death penalty is it is survived in America, not in spite of Christians, but because of us. The, the death penalty wouldn't have stood a chance in the United States without the support of Christians. And wherever Christians have been most concentrated is where the death penalty continues to flourish. I mean, right now, like my, my buddy who's a chaplain on death row, he says, the Bible belt is the death belt. This year, like almost all the executions have happened in Texas and Georgia. Uh, and this is the heart of the Bible Belt. Um, so I, I believe that's changing, and I'm really hopeful. The more people know, the more disturbed they get um, about even how we read Scripture. Um, so I, that's why I wrote a book about it, you know, and, and we've got some great resources out there for folks that are really um, may not even know how they feel about the death penalty or maybe in favor of the death penalty. I was in favor of the death penalty for a lot of my life and, you know, convinced that it was – uh, rooted in scripture and ordained by God. But then, you, you know, the more you look, you see a whole lot of things. Um, the, the racial disparity that's there as well, you know, is, is, um, uh, we, we, when, when the death penalty really, uh, became prominent in the United States, uh, uh, in recent history, like in 1950, black folks were about, 20% of the population of the U.S., 22% of the population, but there were 75% of all executions, 75%. Now, um, African-Americans are like 12% of the, of the population of the U S but there's still over half of death row, almost half of death rows and over a third of the executions are African-Americans. Um, and, and, and we have cases before the Supreme court right now of folks like Dwayne Buck, who is fighting for his life. Um, and I've been connected to his case. In his case, the uh, there was an argument in court that was allowed in by an expert witness that said in Texas, this was in a case in Texas, that black folks are more likely to be violent than white folks. Mm. That was actually entered into the decision that determined whether or not Dwayne Buck should be executed. 
uh, because future dangerousness is the determinant that, you know, uh, looked at in sentencing. And, and, and so, like, we still have folks that, I mean, disturbing things. So I've got a lot of friends that are for the death penalty in principle, but they're against it in practice when they look at the racial bias uh, and, and things um, like innocence. You know, there's a whole movement of conservatives now who, you know, don't want to trust the, the, the government with things like health care and you know, like, do we still trust the government with the ultimate irreversible power of life over death? Because governments make mistakes, you know, and, and when it comes to the death penalty for every nine executions that we've had, we've had one exoneration. So we've had one person released after proving they weren't guilty of the crime that they were sentenced to die for. I mean, that blows my mind. You know, like if every 10 planes took off, if one crashed, We'd be like, whoa, we need to land the planes, you know? So I think that that's why I've become so passionate about this, Greg, is because it raises all kinds of other uh, questions for us. And, and uh, it's very obvious that we are not killing the worst of the worst. We are often killing the poorest of the poor and, and overwhelmingly uh, uh, our brothers and sisters of color when it comes to capital punishment in America. So it's a justice issue, but it's also a spiritual issue. Uh, uh, can we kill to show that killing is wrong? I mean, we don't rape people who rape to show that raping is wrong. And so I think we we can do better than this really uh, uh, terrible form of, of, uh, of um, capital punishment that we have in, in the United States. And so there's all kinds of other, you know, Things. I've worked really closely with murder victims, families, uh, family members. Um, uh, I interviewed an executioner. I never really thought of what it does to people who are responsible for taking someone's life. But I, I've got a whole chapter on the haunted executioners that uh, talks about what that does to us when we are responsible for killing. And that's why I'm inspired by the medical community in North Carolina. In North Carolina, it's the the doctors and nurses that have refused to comply with uh, executions. You know, they've said it's a violation of our oath to do no harm. And uh, so uh, the medical association has backed them so they won't participate in executions. And it halted executions in North Carolina. So I think we need courageous voices right now to take a stand because I, I really believe that we could be the generation to end the death penalty. And I think for many of us, we'd be proud to do that in the name of Jesus, to stand on the right side of history and not look back, you know, and and and. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's not that heroic to look back now and say slavery was wrong, um, but I think we can actually be a part of making history uh, right now. And the bigger picture of, of, of all incarceration and race, racial reconciliation, you've talked about reconciliation a lot, and I had been involved in some civil rights movement, and then I met John Perkins back in the early 80s and had a number of long conversations with that amazing man and really was overwhelmed by his story, and I understood I understood the justice side and the protest side and had been involved in that, but he, he taught me about the, the reconciliation side in a way that I'd never really heard before. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it, it is about that. It's, it's about reconciliation. It's about, well, this is one of the things that I think is so interesting in scripture is the word righteousness and justice are deeply embedded in each other and, and, and even uh, seen as the same concept or word. And, one of my friends said the best translation for the biblical word justice is restorative justice because we've 
become conditioned to think of justice as about getting what you deserve. But that's really different from the biblical idea of justice, which it was much more about healing the wounds, uh, you know, uh, repairing the harm that was done. And, and when we think about that, it opens a whole new idea. You know, I mean, that, that's, that's actually where some uh, in Philly, we've got the oldest penitentiary uh, in the country. And it was called a penitentiary because it shares the same root as repentance. And it was built like a, um, a, a, a convent or a, a monastery so that people could have time. It was built by the Quakers, you know, to, to think about their lives and to be restored to, to, to society again. What we have now is absolutely, uh, I don't even have words for it, but, but, but the fact that in the United States, like right now, this is our situation. One in three African-American boys born today can expect to go to prison. One in three. You know, we've, we've got 5% of the world's population, but we have 25% of the world's prison population. There are more African-Americans in prison today than there were slaves in 1850. I mean, this, this is huge, you know, and it, it's very related to some of the economics and the drug economy and the, uh, the history of, of slavery and, and even systemic racism, you know, where, where you probably saw the Freakonomics study where they sent out identical resumes to different corporations. And the only thing that was different were the names. And on one resume, it would say something like, uh, uh Shannon. And on the other it was Shaniqua or, you know, Jared and, uh, uh, Jacquil yep. and and you know like it, you get exposed because Shannon got the job over Shaniqua every day you know and so I think that's that's like we got some deep stuff that we got to do to heal from and and I think it's a spiritual thing too this this we're wrestling not just against flesh and blood as scripture says but against principalities and powers and those have deep roots in our racial history and in economics and uh, in our biases that we don't even realize, you know, that that are kind of inside of us. So we pray that, you know, God would heal us from that and uh, open our eyes to be able to see a little bit better. You've mentioned the Bible a number of times and you, of course, grew up in the South and I'm sure you heard even those who were who bragged about not being a creedal people always say the Bible says that I believe that that settles it. Um, how do you approach the Bible now and what role do you see as Bible study for those of faith? Oh, I'm a big lover of the Bible. I'm a, I, uh, uh, there, there's, there's a lot of things in the Bible that I, I do find problematic or troubling, you know, like Judges 19, I think it is where the concubine is cut into pieces and this nameless woman or body parts are sent out to the, um, tribes of Israel, you know, I mean, like if that doesn't mess with you, then <laughs> might, might need a heart check, you know, <laughs> but, but I think like, here's, here's what I I've come to, to see is that, that Jesus comes as to show us God's word become flesh. We don't just have the story and words on paper, we have the word become flesh. As my buddy Bruxy Cavey says, I believe in the inerrant, authoritative word of God. His name is Jesus. <laughs> you know, and, and I do believe that 
the, that, that Jesus is the same God of the Hebrew scripture. I mean, that was one of the early, uh, heresies of the church was saying that the God, that, that Jesus is a new and better God than the God of the Old Testament. You know, that God, uh, got born again, <laughs> Jesus, you know, or, or went through anger management or something. And that was a heresy, you know? And so I, I, but the way that I understand the God of the Old Testament that is so big, that if, you know, if you look God in the face, you might even die. Like, that's the God that comes to us in Jesus. And that now I see as a God that is who is with us and among us, who we can love and adore, who's personal and intimate. And 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 when scriptures seem like they are fighting against each other, because there are scriptures that people have used to justify slavery, to uh, d- disempower women. I mean, there's so many different when it, when these scriptures seem like they're at war, Jesus becomes the referee. Jesus becomes the one I look to 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 try to make sense of that. So I that that's why I, I still absolutely love scripture, and that's why you know this idea an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which is one of the most recognized Bible verses in the world. Um, the more I looked at this verse, which I myself had used to justify the death penalty, the more I saw how it had been misconstrued and misunderstood that this was actually um, a way of de-escalating violence, you know, that instead of, uh, there were, uh, even uh, in the Hebrew scripture, it was to set a limit on how much you could retaliate. So what scholars call like reciprocal harm. If someone harms you, you could do the harm back to them, but you couldn't do more. And it was to stop violence. So it's interesting to see the eye for an eye, not as a license for revenge, but actually as a limitation of the violence that you could return. And then it also makes total sense that Jesus comes and says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Moses told you this, but I tell you this. And he shows us an even better way that love can heal all wounds. He shows us that we can, um, you know, even though we might have a legal right to harm someone who's harmed us, it doesn't mean that's right or the best way forward. And so I love that, you know, so I love scripture. I love diving into the scripture and that's, you know, what I did uh, in a lot of my books and with the death penalty and stuff. So I, I still have a very high view of scripture and, and I also am so thankful that so much of what I search scriptures for, I, I ultimately look to Jesus and it all points to him. Well, this next question, the next two questions actually are questions I ask all my guests. Uh, do you believe in hell? I do believe in hell. I, I believe, uh, I think it's actually the, the kind of Catholic position that um, we, to believe in hell, but it, it's not our job to know who's there. <laughs> you know, and, and I think that what, where we get stuck is when we think that we're the gatekeepers of heaven and hell. So I do believe in uh, heaven and hell. Um, I believe in the afterlife. Um, it's also not my judge. There may be a lot of surprises, you know, and I, I look at Jesus and he's, uh, challenging those who thought they had the golden VIP ticket in and he's, he's, um, uh, including those who people would think were totally ostracized like Samaritans and, and others. And so, uh, ultimately I try to point people to Jesus and I, I like how C.S. Lewis talks about it too, which he says, uh, that uh, basically hell uh, may very well be locked from the inside. Mm. So it, it, it's not as as much that God is locking us out, but we're locking ourselves in and we choose a life separate from God and from 
love. Um, and, and, um, so that's, uh, I do believe in hell. And, and in one sense, I, I see that every day. You know, I see, I think heaven is coming on earth and we see glimpses of heaven. We can also see glimpses of hell on earth. Um, and the, 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 there's a thin space between this life and the next and they get blurry sometimes. So I, I think that, that, um, that that's why I think we we see people locking our we we lock ourselves into hells sometimes, but through Jesus we we have uh, uh, the the freedom to be free of that. Well, and it seems uh, I think the reason I asked that question is obviously there's still a very large tradition where the gospel starts with hell and works its way back to Jesus. Sure, man. Like I I I did that. I I went to uh, that thing called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames, where we had these terrible skits that scared, literally scared the hell out of you, you know. And everybody flooded the altar and gave their lives to Jesus. And but in the end, like I didn't choose Jesus because, or I haven't continued to choose Jesus because I'm scared to death of hell, or because I want mansions in heaven and streets of gold. I chose Jesus because he's good. He's beautiful and lovely and the embodiment of God. And so I choose Jesus. You know, Tony Campolo, you mentioned in the beginning, he used to say, would you choose Jesus if there were no heaven and there were no hell? And while I believe there are, I would choose Jesus because of the life, the love, the meaning, the intimacy that I feel right now. And I'm thankful that we have all eternity, you know, to enjoy that. But I, but I, I think that when you hear a lot of people talking about hell and the God that puts people in hell, you hear a lot about a God who is easy to fear, but very hard to love. And the God that I know in Jesus and that I see in Scripture, it says God is love. And we know what love is like. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is gentle. Love holds no record of wrong. So I trust in that God. And I also, you know, I look at uh, um, the, the, the scripture that says even the gates of hell will not prevail and neither life nor death nor angels nor demons nor anything. And, you know, it can separate us from the love of God. So I, I, I trust God with that, you know, and, and uh, I, I'm, I'm excited. Uh, you know, I, I, think, I think God's Mercy triumphs over judgment, as as the Bible says. Well, and even in the judgment, the only the only demarcation I really find Jesus making is in Matthew twenty five, and it's two groups of people: one as a part of their life of feeding the hungry and visiting the sick and clothing and doing those things, and they don't know it because they both ask the same question: When do we see this? That's the only place I see him dividing people at all in something that I consider hell like. Sure. Well, uh, there are you know there's a lot of other times that Jesus talks about. Uh, hell and gnashing of teeth and things like that. So I think that there, there, there is a reality that was also, I mean, this is more we could do on your show, you know, but, uh, I think, I think that there, there, uh, there, there are, uh, implications that how we love our neighbor should demonstrate how we've tasted of heaven and how we've tasted of love's, God's love. So like, um, I, I don't believe we're saved, as the old saying is, that we're saved because we're good, but but rather we're good because we're saved, or we're trying to be good because we've tasted of God's goodness. And, um, you know, I look at Matthew 25, and it is a beautiful, it raises a lot of questions, you know, that all of us are before God, and it's not a doctrinal test that we're given. It's exactly. actually, uh, did, when I was in prison, did you visit me? When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was sick, did you take care of me? A stranger, did you welcome me in? So I think that is... 
in the end, the, the real um, evidence of our life in Christ is how it works itself out to the mar- most marginalized people on earth. And our works don't earn our salvation, but they do demonstrate it. You know, if we are the people of Jesus, this is what we do because this is what Jesus did. And that leads to the other question I ask all my guests. Who is Jesus? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is, uh, well, in, in one sense, I would say Jesus is uh, God with us, God that we can with skin on, love made flesh, and we can see what God is like in Jesus. And Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah that the prophet spoke of. He's also our best friend. You know, Jesus is, uh, Mother Teresa called Jesus her spouse, her lover. <laughs> it's, why, it's always funny to me when people say Catholics don't believe in a personal relationship with Jesus. I'm like, uh, you know, Mother Teresa called Jesus her lover. It doesn't get much more personal than that. So I, uh, that, that's who I know Jesus to be. And Jesus is also, I think, the example of how we are to live in the world. Um, uh, it, Jesus shows us what God is like. So one of my neighbors who speaks Spanish as her first language, she says, sometimes in the seminaries and everything, we make uh, stuff too complicated. She says, like, incarnation. You got all these books and theology. She said, in the end, you order your burrito con carne. It means with meat. And incarnation is what God does in Jesus. It shows us what God is like with meat, with skin on. And uh, And now we're invited to be uh, that incarnation to, to join the manifestation of God's love in the world. It's also why Mother Teresa, great, she went every morning, she took communion, you know, did the Eucharist. And uh, remember, we were talking about that. Like every morning, even when she was in the hospital, she wanted to to eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus, you know. And one of the sisters there said, Well, you know, uh, we were talking about it. And she said, You've heard the saying, You are what you eat. He's like, that's what we're praying when we do the Eucharist, you know, is that we would become what we eat. And so I think that in, in that way, that's the great mystery of it all, too, is that we are praying that we would become Jesus's love in the world. As Mother Teresa said, we would leave off the fragrance of Jesus as we live. Uh, or as Paul said, the life I live, I no longer live, but Jesus lives in me. Uh, so that's, you know, my prayer is that that I would know Jesus more and that Jesus would become more a part of who I am so that people would, my life would be an arrow pointing to heaven. Well, what's next for you, Shane Claiborne? What, what, what do you have in the works? Oh man, I'm going to go out and pick some kale. We got some kale growing in the garden today and I, Tis got, the season. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I, I, I mean, a perfect day for me is doing stuff like this podcast and going and getting my hands dirty in the garden. So I, you know, I helping kids with homework. We got all kinds of stuff that we're, doing i mean i'd like to end the death penalty uh pretty soon be great there's an execution sadly uh scheduled for tonight and everyone is too many so you know i i I really believe we can do that now i'll I'll be very active in the next few months or uh, you know on that issue in particular but we're sharing food with people help you know hanging out with kids and planting gardens. That's what we do. We're making abandoned houses come back to life so families have a place to live. And um, I'm really glad to get to talk to you, man. And folks can keep up with our work. Uh, Follow me on Facebook or Twitter or just check out our web pages and whatnot. 
Well, thanks, Shay and Claiborne. May your next 41 years be full of greater joy and blessing than your first 41. <laughs> Amen. That's what Tony says. We're as young as, as our dreams and as old as our cynicism. So I pray I, I keep getting younger and younger as the years pass. Great. Well, thanks, Shane. Appreciate it. It is rare to run into someone with as much enthusiasm and hope and light as Shane Claiborne and the difference he's making in this world. His light is shining brightly. And I appreciate again him taking time to join us on the Thinking God podcast. Hope you'll come back next week and join us as we look for light and hope from people of faith who think that's still a Bible option. Feel like you've lost your way When the can